This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 696. Is it 696 or 695? 696. 95 was uh, our last uh, extra. Well, no, it was before the extra. Actually, we didn't count the extra. It might be 695. We're it's 695 because 694 was Mr. Sinister. There we go. This and is how the sausage is made. <laughs> hey, have it. It's the Two at a Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one, the internet's Joe Patrick. And I had some late nights wrestling with some heady time travel and philosophical questions about man tampering with dangerous sciences after my reading for this episode. I'm your head number two. My name is Matt Baum. And me too, Joe. Like, does Modoc poop in that chair? 100%. (laughs) It's got to, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's time for another Cosmic Longbox episode where we learn firsthand what happens when a man tries to play God in back issues based on a theme. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. But now, even the future tech we purchased from that group of terrorist engineers can't stop the power of the Cosmic Longbox. It's back issue review time in the cigarette. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania hits theaters this weekend, so the CLB has us digging through back issues to learn more about the villains featured in the new Ant-Man. Kang and MODOK! I will be on Kang duty today, and Joe will be handling Mr. MODOK. But Joe, before you get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about the mobile organism designed only for killing! As Matt said, MODOK is an acronym for mental or mobile or mechanized, depending on who you ask yeah, and when you ask it. It, it changes a lot. Organism designed only for killing. Uh, in fact, it used to end with a C, not a K, because it used to be designed only for computing. Oh. Uh, he's a character created by Stanley and Jack Kirby in the pages of Tales of Suspense number 93, uh, which came out in September 1967. Uh, MODOK is George Tarleton, a former scientist or employee. It's unclear if he was like a scientist or just a flunky. I mean, probably or, both, uh, right? Everybody works uh, the same I mean, scientist, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the leader was a janitor, so who knows? So yeah. Uh, this is for Advanced Idea Mechanics or AIM. And we all know AIM. They wear the yellow beekeeping outfits. They are mad scientists. Yeah, yeah. They were performing an experiment... Uh, utilizing the cosmic cube and George was kind of voluntold that he would be taking part in said experiment. (laughs) George, we think you'd be perfect for this. (laughs) Yes. Things go awry and George undergoes, uh, this is now from the wiki, substantial mutagenic medical experimentation originally designed to increase his intelligence. And while that is successful, it does leave him with a freakishly overdeveloped head and stunted body. Yeah, we learned in the Marvel Universe that the size of your brain directly correlates to your intelligence. <laughs> like, yes. And this is yes. not just Modak. See the leader for more examples, you know? Great big uh, head. Well, I think, I think there are definitely stories where Reed Richards or Ultimate Reed Richards... Yes, uh, flexed expand. his brain. 
blows up the size of his brain. To yeah. make, that's not how that's not how the brain works. Uh, okay, you know, so, but it's whatever. cool to think about. Uh, so this, of course, causes uh, is what causes Modak to develop his signature look, which is that of a floating head in a flying uh, toilet. We decided he immediately turns on aim. And that kind of leads right into my first review, which is Tales of Suspense 94. Again, all of these reviews are from Marvel. So uh, this came out in 1967. It's written by Stan Lee. The art is by Jack Kirby and Joe Sinnott. Here's a solicit for you. The first appearance of MODOK. Technically, George Charlton is radically transformed into MODOK after an experiment with AIM and the Cosmic Cube goes awry. When Sharon Carter goes undercover at AIM and is discovered, Captain America will come face to very large face with Modoc. <laughs> Thank you, Marvel fandom wiki, for that hilarious solicit. Modoc actually kind of sort of appeared, as I said, in the previous issue, but it was as a disembodied voice over the radio. So you don't actually see Modoc until this issue, his first full appearance the mental organism designed only for killing in all of his glory. In an attempt to rescue the mysterious Agent 13, spoilers, it's Sharon Carter. Everybody knows it now, but then we didn't. Cap is captured by AIM and presented to their master. But you can't keep the shield slinger down. Cap and Sharon rally and make short work of the beekeeping scientists who ended up betraying and murdering MODOK. Don't worry, he gets better. This issue reminded me of two things that I always forget. Number one, Modoc took over AIM at the moment of his creation. They have always hated him for it, and they are constantly looking for opportunities to stab him in the back. Oh, yeah. Modoc and AIM do not get along. No, but this wasn't like a Skynet thing either. It wasn't like, like, Modoc. No, no, no. Modoc took like, a little bit. Modoc learned. Modoc gently, like, then Modoc sees their, like, nope. Modoc was just like, I am awake. You work for me now. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like working for the Joker, right? It's yeah. like you you figure out very quickly that it's a bad idea to work for this maniac, but uh, you also can't stop working for this maniac, or else he'll string you up by your intestines. Well, it's not like you work for the Joker. It's like you hired the Joker, not really knowing a lot about him, but you heard he was great, and he came in and he was like, "No, no, 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 no." Right? This is my. I'm game. in right. charge. Bang! Bang! Yeah, yeah, bang! Exactly. <laughs> You're like Jesus. Uh, <laughs> number two, inside that flying chair. Modoc is a giant head on a teensy tiny body, yeah. which gives me the giggles every time I see it. It's so easy to forget that and assume that the jetpack chair is like a part of his body, like a cyborg butt or something. But no, it's just a high tech rascal scooter. Uh, you know what? As Matt and I have decided in this very episode, toilet. it is a high tech flying toilet. Yeah. It's 1967, and Lee and Kirby and Sinnott are at the peak of their powers, packing more action and new ideas into half of a comic book issue than you'll find in some entire story arcs. Now, this is uh, Tales of Suspense, which was always split between two features. At this point in time, the lead feature was Iron Man, and so the first half is Gene Colan and I think still Stan Lee, and it's Iron Man stuff. You can read that if you like. I did not because I read, I read two modoc chapters um i'm sure they're great but in this half of an issue there's so much going on there's so much action the sound effects are insane if we were still doing the onomatopoeia of the week this could keep us going for months easily yeah now we do not actually get modoc's origin in this issue but don't worry about it turns out uh, they recap modoc's origin almost every other time that he appears i 
when I was picking out my choices for this episode, I'm like, oh, look, it's the recap of Modoc's origin. Again. Oh, same with like, Kang. Seriously. Same with Kang. Don't it's, worry. <laughs> like, it's, it's not every appearance, but it's lots of them. Tales of Suspense 94 serves as a great introduction to one of Marvel's goofiest and most enduring villains, executed by absolute masters. What more do you want, true believer? It's a buy it. So the first story, like you mentioned, was Iron Man. And when you, like, in 93, in Tales of Suspense 93, the, which the second story is Captain America and MODOK, you open it up, and I just started reading because I'm like, ah, whatever. Sure, Iron Man. right. I'm like, yeah, oh, like, I yeah. thought I thought this was a Cap thing. We met Modok, but maybe it was Iron Man because the first page is like, "True believer, you're not gonna believe who Iron Man is fighting next." But once you see it, you're gonna be hooked. And then you turn the page, and it's Half Face and Titanium Half-face, Man. Yeah. And I was like, really? And you got Modok <laughs> as a backup story? Like that is way more shocking. <laughs> yeah, it's but, true. This is one of those books that I didn't realize how formative this story is. But when you just like Google search Jack Kirby art, you will easily see seven, maybe eight panels from this comic alone because it's bonkers. Everything from Cap in his mini sub, like swimming up to the. Yes, that little sub, that little uh, personal submarine thing. It's so wild. And like all the weird posing of the AIM guys and MODOK first showing up is really disturbing and weird <laughs> like the way cap throws punches with his entire yeah. body oh, where it's like, like oh yeah yeah this is fantastic and it's one of those things where you can tell that like modok was probably just a throwaway idea or whatever and well yeah because he dies right they kill him in this issue and they're like no we can't kill him he was way too cool did you see like fans freaked out they wrote letters and stuff like what was with the big head dude is he pooping that chair like i need more of that you know <laughs> no this is a massive buy it Great introduction to Modoc. I will say, Sharon Carter has some problems. <laughs> like she, it's all you know. It's she, like oh, it's so I, I can't instantly I can't. in love with Captain America, and she runs around more than four times. I think she says, oh, "I haven't even seen your face, and I'm madly in love with you, and I would do anything for you. I'll give my life for you." Like, no, oh, shoot yeah. me! Don't shoot him! Shoot me! <laughs> like, Jesus what, Christ! Yeah, and it's like, uh, uh. <laughs> she is crazy, like problematically in love with Cap. She instantly. is like Beyonce, crazy in love. And Cap keeps running around going, come on, girl. All right, sweetie. <laughs> like, let's get Yeah, all right. Yeah. So she works for S.H.I.E.L.D., Cap. She's killing people. She should. And when she shows up, she's like, I can use this gun just as good as a man. <laughs> it's very problematic. Good for yeah. you, baby. Silver, you know, but I'm giving it a play. This is not fun. known for his, not known for his, uh, you know. No, we'll talk about his wasp dialogue later. <laughs> I'm right. giving it some buy it. <laughs> Matt Bomb, why don't you give us a little bit of background on King the Conqueror before we get into your I would like to, but I'm going to warn you, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. So, (laughs) Kang the Conqueror has to be one of Marvel's most compelling and complicated villains. He would become one of the Avengers' chief nemeses, but as you will see, Kang has been a lot of people, and I mean literally. He started out Nathaniel Richards, and yes, he is related to Mr. Fantastic. He was a brilliant kid born in the 30th century, but a series of time-traveling adventures would split him into several different villainous personas and even a couple of heroes. Kang's story centers around him battling several versions of himself, 
but the core of the character was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby way back in 1963. And that's where we start in the pages of Fantastic Four, Volume 1, Number 19, from Marvel. As I mentioned, it was 1963, and this was written by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Here's a little setup here. Get ready, because the crazy Kang saga begins here with Nathaniel Richards' first appearance, not as Kang, but as Ramatut, the time-traveling pharaoh with a time machine shaped like a sphinx. Of course, we find out that Nathaniel Richards is not only related to Reed, but he's a whole lot of other people in the pages of FF273 much later, where they finally spell all this stuff out. So it was years and years and years and years. He just kind of kept mentioning stuff, and people were going, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> so yeah. In, in fact, um, I think it was uh, the most recent big anniversary issue that fell during Dan Slott's run. Like it, it would have been like number 700 or something like that. Right. Maybe that was the main story where it was like a bunch of different versions of Kang all showed up for like some event. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like going back in time and talking to yourself, hanging out, having a beer, whatever. Only they don't have beers. They try and kill each other. The purple, well, right. the purple and green are here, but this Kang wears an Egyptian headdress and short shorts, too, because it's probably too hot in the desert for a full Kang costume. I get it. The FF gets involved when Reed and Sue notice some missing Egyptian history and a pharaoh that cured blindness and hieroglyphics at the Museum of Natural Sciences. So, of course, they want to take the thing's main squeeze, Alicia Masters, who happens to be blind, back to ancient Egypt. So it's off to Doom's abandoned castle to borrow his time platform, which is still there and plugged in, thankfully. <laughs> and the next stop, ancient Egypt. This version of Kang was an action adventure seeker who thought the year 3000 was just a little too chill. So he traveled back to ancient Egypt to rule with a laser gun that takes powers and saps your will. And of course, he uses the gun to make Sue his love slave. <laughs> Yeah. These early FF titles are timeless Marvel classics. Yes, they get very silly. Ramatut rules Egypt with a laser gun. The FF outsmarts him by taking the laser gun. Sue is terrible at using her powers when they would be perfect to get the team out of literally every problem that they are in. <laughs> but there is a lot to love here. There's even a Ben Grimm line that seems to lay the foundation for who Kang will become. There's a scene where Grimm, after learning that he was this pharaoh that traveled back in time, says maybe he, being Ramatut, was doom. Maybe he found a way to live for centuries. It might have been the doom of the future. So you can see these guys thinking here that they were. Gonna yeah, they're do thinking fourth dimensionally, yeah. like Doc Brown. They were going to do something with Doctor Doom, probably, and they were like, no, 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 no. We got other plans for Doom. This guy's going to be somebody else. More on that in a bit here. There's been a long argument amongst collectors that this is the first appearance of Kang. All the basics for Kang, I agree, are here, but I do not agree that this is his first appearance. This is no. another version of the character. Yes, but as you will see in the comics I talk about after this one, each persona is wholly different, and something has to happen to Ramatut before he can become Kang. First appearance of Nathaniel Richards, yes. First appearance of Ramatut. Absolutely. First appearance Kang? No. Giving it a buy it. I think it's even a little bit less accurate than saying 
Uncanny X-Men number 201 is the first appearance of Cable. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's the birth of Nathan Summers. Right. And it's like, no, no. I, I guess if you want to split, uh, uh, if you want to get semantical, you can say that, but it'll never be as as valuable as New Mutants 87. Also, if your name is Nathan in the Marvel Universe, watch the frig out, man, because there's all yeah, kinds no kidding, of weird right? stuff that's going to happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Probably involving time travel. But uh, yeah, it, like this is... Like you can you can draw a line between baby Nathan and Cable and and and, and chart his entire life from sure. birth through Inferno through um, apocalypse and sacrificing yeah, yeah, him yeah. to the future Absolutely. blah blah blah. But with Kang, it's like no. They first of all they never say the word Kang in this comic. No. So any connection to Kang that Ramatat has was added retroactively. Although purple and green is here. That I doubt that was I doubt that was intentional, but maybe it's here. Uh, who knows? Just saying. And even the soldiers that work he, for him, they're all wearing, wearing purple, purple and green. Yeah, you know what? Maybe they planned ahead, but you know what? Stan Lee was writing like twenty-seven comics at this point in time. It's true, and he couldn't remember the difference between Betty Banner and Betty Brant, and that Peter Parker's name was Peter Parker, not Peter Palmer. So I kind of <laughs> doubt it. Uh, but yeah, of course, this is great fun. It's Lee and Kirby, early FF. I will say, in defense of of Sue. I mean, yeah, the writing is what it is, but Sue's like mastery of the whole, the force field stuff. Like her, she did not have a lot of control over her powers until much later on. And there are issues devoted to like, All right. trying maybe to help she's her. just not really good at it yet. I'll give her that. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, it, it, it's also, it's like, it's a real easy way to say, well, I guess we got to save the dame. You know, it's like, no, sure. stop it. Sure. But this is a huge buy. Of course, it's it's great fun, and I I love Kang. I love the I love the twisty turny aspects of his origin. I love the fact that like he grows up to be own be his own worst enemy. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's it's very awesome. cool. Let's stick with the uh, purple and green theme and talk about the Incredible Hulk for a minute. I'm talking about Incredible Hulk 289. This is from 1983. It's written by Bill Mantlo with art by Sal Buscema and Joe Sinnott. That's two, maybe three comics for with, with Joe Sinnott. Because I think he probably inked that FF issue too. Oh, he did. Definitely. Yeah. Joe Sinnott's all over the place here. Yeah. Here is your solicit. This is courtesy of Marvel.com. Betty Ross, to her horror, discovers the treason of her father, Thunderbolt Ross, who has delivered the Hulk into the clutches of MODOK. Aim and the abomination. All of that is a spoiler for the very like last two pages of the issue. Sorry. Yeah. Thanks, Marvel.com. One man she loves has sent the other love of her life to almost certain doom. Now, I had this issue as a kid, so I was very excited to have an excuse to revisit it for this episode. Hulk 289 came out when I was five years old, and it was my very first exposure to Modoc, Aim, and the Abomination. As usual, AIM is in upheaval, wrapped up in a violent civil war between the traditional yellow beekeepers and a rogue faction in stylish blue outfits. Yeah, they got like round dome heads. They got more rounded yeah. Uh, helmets, yeah. As usual, once again, AIM has decided to drive MODOK out by attacking from two fronts when he least expects it. Meanwhile, the abomination is stalking Bruce Banner under the orders from the big brain. This is a completely different side to all three characters than the ones that I would become used to. Modoc is sadistic and terrifying, having tortured the abomination to the breaking point, leaving him a weeping mess, helpless to resist his master's wishes. 
Bruce Banner has somehow asserted control of the Hulk persona and continues his work in peace under the watchful eye of S.H.I.E.L.D., however. Mantlo's excellent script covers a ton of ground in 22 or so pages, doing a fantastic job establishing MODOK's incredible power, the Abomination's complete brokenness. The Abomination is just straight up crying. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like MODOK has broken him like yeah. to nothing. Look, there's like a I panel mean, where, and I, and I stuck it in her back issues. And I like, saw you know, it. Because yeah, I was I just it. like, what? The hell? And he's, he's just like, oh man, I gotta go fight the Hulk. And the Hulk's gonna kick my ass again. He's like, I hate this. And he's so upset. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's how ter- that's how powerful Modoc is. They're I trying guess. to tell us Modoc is. I'm just not used to that Emil Blonsky. My Emil Blonsky. We, a we certainly more don't get that side of the abomination often. <laughs> yeah. Or ever. Oh, Bruce Banner is continuing to wrestle with his dual nature and how the world perceives him, especially now that he is in control of the monster and people are still giving him the side eye, which of course you, of course you would like, why wouldn't you? Sure. We even get an unexpected love triangle between Bruce, his undercover shield agent research assistant and the robot girlfriend that he accidentally created. Uh, every scientist in the Marvel universe also can create robots. Eventually they create, that's how it is. Yeah. I'm Tony created Joe Casta, you know, like, the X-Men. Uh, well, Ultron created Jocasta. The Hank Pym created Ultron. The Danger Room turned into a woman. Yeah, the Danger Room it became, yeah. Uh, and and yeah, Bruce Banner made a flying softball personal assistant and it fell in love with yeah, him. So it was, it what was, do you get? What do you do? Kind of the evil sphere from Phantasm, but it was just like, it yeah, yeah. was so jealous of the hot chick that was working with yeah. her. It was just like, Dr. Bitch, G- Dr. I Dr. know Green why Girl. you're here, and it is not to work on camera radiation. <laughs> it was <laughs> great. True. You know, it happens more often than you think. It's one of those things. The art by legends, Sal Buscema and Joe Sinnott is a real delight. Sinnott's super clean inks are a perfect match for Buscema's pencils, and the pair deliver some great action-packed visuals. Incredible Hulk 289 was one of my favorite comics as a kid, and I'm so glad that, at least for me, this issue totally holds up almost 40 years later. This is a huge buy-in for me. Oh, I, I love this comic. This comic's great. It, it's weird as hell, and it just, like, shows how strange the Incredible Hulk, how strange of a place the Incredible Hulk was in at this time. I absolutely love the weirdness of it, though. Like, the abomination crying, the jealous robot girlfriend. Hulk on the cover with a laser gun for some reason. It's a gamma. It's a gamma tracker. It, he builds it in this issue. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> but it does look like a laser gun. It does. Like this is just wild, wild, incredible Hulk stuff. The one thing that it does a really good job at, and you can tell they're trying to sell it, is making Modok a badass. Like, how do we sell right. that this guy, who is effectively a big head on a little body? in a flying chair that shoots lasers out of his head. How do we sell that he's so badass that the abomination is scared of him and the Hulk is going to have trouble dealing with him? And yeah, there's a couple points where I was like, all right, yeah, okay. Like, AIM is having trouble, but AIM was always having trouble with this guy. I get it. But at, like, one point, he's like, oh, I have to escape. Too many AIM soldiers are shooting at me. So I will blast a hole through a mountain with (laughs) my head. To escape, like, hey, Modoc, why don't you shoot those guys? <laughs> like, you could blow yeah. a hole in a mountain, dude. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah. you're totally right. It is, but yeah, it's like, look, they make a point in this issue of saying, 
the abomination on paper, like, you know, if we're just measuring statistics, is stronger than the Hulk. Right. At a baseline level. But the but Modoc was able to break the abomination. That's how badass yeah. Modoc is. He's so smart. There's like nothing you can do. And like and it's not even the smarts, but like Modoc, I like I think that he is legitimately supposed to be incredibly powerful. Well, yeah. I mean, they make it look like his brain blaster is like I mean, he blasted through a mountain. Watch the frig out. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, like, AIM is always going to be trying to kill. Well, half of AIM is going to be trying to kill him. And the other half is just like, we're so scared. We just do whatever he says. <laughs> Don't work for AIM is what you will learn from this. No, <laughs> like, no. Rough, rough organization to work for. Huge buy it for me, though. This comic was just a ton of fun. Uh, real quick aside, uh, fun fact about the next issue in this storyline. At the end of this comic, the Abomination kidnaps the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, whose name is, like, Waynesboro, Gainesboro, I forget. It's irrelevant. Waynesboro. Agent Waynesboro. But, I mean, she's, she's kind of, she's a non-entity. Yeah. Like, you, you, you don't, you wouldn't recognize, you wouldn't know her if she showed up today. She also happens to look just like Betty, you know, so. Well, not, not at this time. In this point in time, Betty has, like, long, kind of auburn hair. Oh, so. okay. Like, yeah, she was at the, you didn't see her? She's in the very end of the comic. Oh, that's right, that's right. Sorry. Anyway. I'm used to I'm used to brunette Betty. My bad. Yeah, yeah. Abomination captures the shield agent, takes her to Modoc. Modoc's like, it's destiny. We're gonna put her into the machine that made me into into me, and she's gonna be my wife. Is I she love modem? Let's do it. Oh my god, is she modem? I knew that's what you would ask. She is not modem. Uh, her name is Ms. Modoc. Lame. She's not the mobile organism designed only for Modoc then I don't care. <laughs> no, her, her name is, her name is Ms. Modoc. And at the end of the issue, they reverse the process. She turns back to normal. But it's like, if you thought this issue was, was wild next issue. Holy crap. Holy. It's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> I almost wish we would have done that one instead. <laughs> well, amazing. I mean, this one, I like this one because it's, it's, it's got a lot of good Modoc content. Fair. Modoc. And do you know what Modoc stands for? Mental organism design. Or Killing. For killing. Well, I hope you're excited because it's time for the actual first appearance of Kang in Avengers number eight from Marvel 1964, written by Stan Lee with art by Jack Kirby. Here's your setup. The Avengers still can't agree on a leader because obviously making a cap is way too easy. And Kang shows up in a UFO with a vibration ray that tanks hate. And the wasp thinks he's probably cute under his helmet. See, this is how girls thought back in the 60s. It's science. Don't argue with me, ladies. It's Yeah, Just it's historic. It Look it up. Okay. <laughs> Kang quickly whips the Avengers, so the U.S. send in the bureaucrats. And Kang tells them about that time that he was a pharaoh in Egypt. And when he tried to get back home to the year 3000, he overshot and ended up in the year 4000. He just meant, forgot to mention that the FF took his gun and whipped his ass. Turns out the year 4,000, not as cushy as the year 3,000 where he was bored. There's actually like two races of barbarian aliens fighting each other, future weapons. Nobody even knows where they're fighting. And in this morass of war, Kang is born. Kang has come to take over the planet. But one thing he didn't take into account, the clever tricks of Rick Jones and his teen brigade, who kind of dress like they're in their mid-40s who tricked Kang into letting them onto his ship by basically saying, hey man, we're on your side. And Kang's interview process isn't the best, so he's just like, you're hired. And they instantly turn on him and free the Avengers. This issue 
is your official first appearance of Kang. And for the most part, Kirby and Lee had him fully formed from day one here as the time-traveling conqueror. But they slipped in that he was also Ramatut, opening the door to the idea of tons of Kang personalities. This Kang relies on his ship and his belt with one button that seems to do a lot of things, frankly. Also, he can shoot radiation out of his head, but they set him up as a major player that can take a shot from Thor's hammer and easily beat the Avengers. Now, maybe there are no plucky mischievous teens in the 40th century, so he wasn't ready for Rick's gang, but otherwise, Kang was a certified heavy of a villain from his first appearance. Again, this is very early Marvel, so the writing is pretty silly. Jan has some of the worst female dialogue ever put on page. But this is prototypical Avengers being called in to handle a new crazy villain stuff, and it really does set the stage for the Kang we would come to know and love. Now, we screamed and yelled about how great Jack Kirby was in that Tales of Suspense book, and he really was, and he's perfectly good here too, but I don't think he's doing all the art. I think Dick Ayers is doing quite uh, a bit of heavy lifting. I think that the inking is not doing Kirby any favors. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a little bit of, I, okay, that could be. This is not as great of Jack Kirby, certainly. It's still very cool. I love how ridiculously big Kang's head is when he first shows up. Like his helmet is massive. And very he, large. And when he shoots radiation out of it, it looks like he's got to like focus and grunt and <laughs> squeeze radiation out or something. This is ridiculous, but it is the first appearance. One of the Avengers' main nemesis. You have to give this a buy it. There's just no way around it. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, this is, uh, again, just even if you're only revisiting it from a historical perspective, it's, it's so much fun to see the building blocks, you know, start to get stacked. Right? Sure. Um, I, I'll tell you this, though, about the art. Um, I agree. This isn't the best Kirby work, and I don't know if Dick Ayers is the right inker for him. I can tell you that I 100% don't like the fact that you can see glimpses of Kang's skin through the holes in his mask, which yeah. make it look like a gimp mask. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, at this point, he With was the zipper undone. He yeah. was more just a guy in a costume than he was wearing armor, I think. But well, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he is wearing like a helmet with a thing over his face. Yeah, in, but like you could, you could see his lips, you can see his teeth. Because it, it, but it, because that face emotes, like if he opens his mouth and talks, it moves. Right. Like it's not like frozen, like armor. This is not, but it's not a Dr. Doom mask. This is like he's wearing a ski mask and you yeah. can see through the holes and see like, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, this is a, this is a huge buy it. Naturally. It's, it's super goofy fun. Stanley should have just like not written about not written any women like I I, I I know that that's that might sound bad on the face of it but it's just wait wait for somebody that can write a woman right character like, a female character that's not obsessed with how the villain looks everyone else is just like Kang is dangerous Kang must be stopped what are we gonna do about Kang and Jan's like I would totally make out with that dude I bet he's so <laughs> handsome I bet he's handsome and it was the same with same shit with Sharon it's just like totally Jan even goes to wherever I don't know where it is like to Avengers hideout or something gets the gun that Hank needs and comes back and instead of just shooting the gun that's going to do the thing that messes Ka Kang up. She's like, 
You take it. I'm just a girl. <laughs> so he can yeah, shoot him. Like, yeah. It's, <laughs> just shoot him. It's, <laughs> it's not great. It's not great. But yeah, fun stuff, though. Let's slingshot two decades into the future. The year is 1986. The comic book is Captain America, number 313. It's written by Mark Ruinwald with art by Paul Neary and Al Williamson. Here is your solicit. Again, courtesy of Marvel.com. The Captain America hotline gets a call that really burns up the wires. <laughs> and the all-new Serpent Society take on an assassination contract in Mission Murder Modoc. Big Head Teeny Body is back in this issue from legendary cap writer Mark Grunewald and artist Paul Neary. The Serpent Society has been hired to kill Modoc by those assholes at AIM. Again. And they catch him with his robo pants down, literally. Meanwhile, Cap checks in on what must be the least efficient crisis hotline in history and stumbles upon the battle between Modoc and the serpents, like literally accidentally finds it. He's got one person helping him check the phone lines and that she's got hundreds of calls to go through and you can't tell which ones are real and which ones are pranks. And he only gets the messages when he remembers to come to the office. Yeah, it's like because most of or like, or if he finds a payphone. Hey, Cap, is your refrigerator running? (laughs) You know, exactly. God damn it! I'm trying to listen for Hydra calls. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. (laughs) By the way, uh, the Serpent Society has got to be one of the silliest groups of allegedly intimidating villains. I love the Serpent Society. Yeah, they're stupid. I love them. (laughs) Yeah, they're dumb. For every member that has a cybernetic snake theme or cool powers or whatever, there's one that's just like a sideshow snake charmer trying not to get murdered. (laughs) And when they want to go incognito, they throw on matching trench coats over their ridiculous costumes. Some of these people have long tails and are eight feet tall. Well, I mean, like, what do you want them to do, Joe? Like, you're getting you're getting really I don't want to say racist, but maybe your body shaming. What you what you're doing right now one is your guy, body one shaming. guy wears a one guy wears a metal mask that covers all of his facial features and has a three foot tall mohawk. <laughs> all right. This is also an early appearance of Diamondback, future lady love of Cap that dresses head to toe in hot pink leotard. Oh yeah. And throws, you know, sharp rocks or whatever they are. It's very scary. Gruenwald's dialogue here is pretty cringeworthy and not in a charming silver age kind of way. <laughs> this is the eighties. At this point, we should, uh, we should maybe be a little bit better than this. This is the same year that the watchman came out. Okay. Paul Neary is primarily known as an inker, often paired with artistic powerhouses like Mike Zek and Brian Hitch. Neary's own art is okay, but there are lots of goofy anatomical moments and bizarre framing choices. Kids do not draw your figures standing on the bottom border of a panel like it's the floor (laughs) do not have their body parts get bisected perfectly at the joints it looks weird your brain interprets it wrong it's it it, it doesn't work captain america 313 presents a surprisingly gruesome end for modok that is at odds with how silly the rest of the issue is but as with his supposed death in Tales of Suspense, he'll get better in no time. Uh, in the future, when he comes back, uh, he gets revived by the Cosmic Cube. Bing, bang, boom. No harm, no foul. 
I'm giving this a skim it. This is this one's not great. Yeah. So I I've yelled a lot about how much fun I have reading the Mark Grunwald caps. And there is a lot of very good Mark Grunwald cap. Some of them are very bad. There is also some very bad Mark Grunwald cap. And this falls into that category. It's not great. Um there is some creepy scenes like when Bushmaster is like sucking on or injecting Modoc. Yeah, they, they're like they're, they they <laughs> Modoc dies. First of all, first of all, the 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 killing blow happens off panel. Yeah, but they slit his throat and then start to eat him. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's it's wild. Um, and again, I love the Serpent Society. This is not the best representation of the Serpent Society. I will say there is a scene where Modoc escapes from a sub where he was being held and flies out of the water and his chair makes the noise sploot, thereby confirming ah. that it is in <laughs> fact a toilet because I'm assuming in this panel he is pooping while carrying Bushmaster out of the water with him yeah, before he yeah, blows Bushmaster's like- arms off. <laughs> Yeah, he's just like ah, sploot. Yeah, I can't give it a leave it because it's so wild. Well, and no, was, I would no, I didn't give it. A leave and it it's fun to read. And Diamondback is so hot. I just love her. <laughs> I love her costume. Diamondback. Her heels. For, <laughs> she throws diamonds. For the record, they are not I get sharp it. rocks. They're, they're sharp. Diamonds. They're sharp. You know what? Diamonds are sharp rocks, man. <laughs> okay, so, fair enough. My point stands. All and right. they're not diamonds because they break open and release chemicals or whatever. Some of them do. Yes. This is. This is. This is a skim it. <laughs> it's a skim it, but it, it's not great, but it is fun to read. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've read worse comics for sure. sure. Absolutely. You may notice a theme here, but we're going to stick with the Avengers and talk about Avengers Forever. Number one from 1998. This is written by Kurt Busiek with art by Carlos Pacheco. Here's your setup. This issue kicks off one of my favorite Avenger stories ever written featuring Rick Jones, who had recently fallen ill in the pages of The Incredible Hulk number 470. The Avengers have brought Rick to the blue area of the moon where the Kree Supreme Intelligence is being held captive for reasons I cannot totally remember. But as I found out, this was, uh, was just, it uh, was it uh, Operation Galactic Storm still? Was no, still a this is after Kurt Busiek's court martial of Carol Danvers story. Oh, Live Cree or Die was the storyline. Okay, in Avengers Volume yes. 3. It was a crossover between all of the, you know, the Heroes Return books. Gotcha, so okay. Avengers Iron Man, yeah. So, But instead of getting the help they need for Rick, he's whisked away by Immortus, who plans to kill Rick to protect the timeline. Of course, Kang, who just loves to mess with his older self, shows up to save Rick, and in the end... We have a group of time and reality displaced Avengers sent on a time-spanning mission with Kang and Immortus at war in the background. Now, you may be saying, who is this Immortus guy? Well, he's Kang. We don't really know. We don't really know. We, we don't totally know, but all, all signs point to older version of Kang that Kang grows up to be that hates his younger self. Because they have different ideas of how time yeah, travel and, right. and what is what is conquering and what is winning, I guess. <laughs> now, <laughs> right? Matt, uh, am I correct in, in stating that Immortus is the final incarnation of Kang? Or is there something that comes after Immortus? Maybe. 
But there's also this character that is not a Mortis that is called He Who he Is who At remains. The End or He Who oh. Remains. That's that's who we got in Loki. That was the Correct. variant of that we got in Loki, the jo- that Jonathan Majors. Who played. may be Immortus. In the comics, there is someone else that is he who remains or he who is at the end. And we don't know if that is Kang or if it's Immortus. And that's the mystery. <sighs> we can never know who won. This my was head hurts. my first Kang versus Immortus story back in the day. And I picked it up because I loved Carlos Pacheco who was also working on the X-Men at the time. I did not give much of a crap about the Avengers at all, but you put Pacheco on a book, young Matt Bomb's going to pick it up. Busiek does a wonderful job setting up the differences between Kang and Immortus. Kang believes that he can change time just kind of by being his badass self, and Immortus believes that things have to happen a certain way, and he does what must be done to protect or gently redirect the timeline there's an incredible fight scene between the two of them that sees kang summoning future weapons to fight off amortis's never-ending army of time displaced troops that live in his limbo which is a temporal limbo not the other place limbo that we know from the x-men Different limbo. Um, as Matt and I, as Matt and I decided again, we decided a lot of things about a lot of things this week. But, I don't, I don't know if uh, I agree Mo- with you here. I don't think Modox, Modox chairs a toilet. Right. Um, we also agreed that it's sort of like puffs is Kleenex. High V, high V nose tissue. Puffs. It's puffs. The Kleenex. Okay. Well, I would say it's a brain puffs puffs with lotion. It's a kind. Okay. It's a kind of. I don't agree with you here. Every facial, every facial tissue is, you know, Kleenex, but really those are the only one real Kleenex. All Kleenex are facial tissues, but not all facial tissues are Kleenex is what you're trying to say. Exactly. But it's shorthand is that we all call the, like, hand me a Kleenex. Gotcha. Now, I don't agree. This limbo is different. He calls it limbo. It is a temporal limbo. He but has it's not the limbo. No respect for the other place limbo because whatever, it's magic bullshit and he does not care. So Magic, Madeline Pryor, Bunch of Demons, Sim, they may all call it Limbo, but I don't think Immortus gives a crap and probably thinks his has been around longer. And there's more Limbos, Joe. There's like four of them. (laughs) I mean, I don't think I've ever read a comic book where anybody from Magic's Limbo calls it other place. So whatever. Whatever. I agree. That's a whole tangent, though. Let's do an episode where we just do nothing but Limbo issues. (laughs) Deal. Eight different Limbos. Pacheco draws my favorite Kang. To this day, and it is from this comic. He is sneering. He's scary. He looks disgusted by anything Immortus has to say in every panel. Immortus is almost trying to reason with Kang at times, and poor Rick Jones has no idea what's going on. I do not want to spoil where this one goes because if you haven't read Avengers Forever Volume One, it is an absolute treat. Buy this. It is. Some of the best Immortus and Kang interactions that have ever been that really sets them up as separate characters doing separate things with different ideas. And you learn why they hate each other. Busiek finally spelled it out. I love it. Yes. And now I can't, uh, I, I haven't looked it up to compare the creators, but 
this is where I started to notice Pacheco's ongoing partnership with Inker Jesus Marino. Yeah, absolutely. With whom he would work for many, many, many years to come, like on all of his DC work. Like his X-Men stuff, it, it looks different. This is after his X-Men work. Right. And this is 1998. That X-Men stuff would have been, you know, 96, 95. And so when these two guys started teaming up, like the, the sum was greater than, oh yeah, or the, the result was greater than the sum of its parts. They would do Aerosmith. Uh, or whatever the hell that statement is. With Busiek over at uh, Homage and, and whatnot. Aerosmith, yes. Yeah. Uh, like they did an arc of Superman, Batman with the Legion of uh, Supervillains, which oh, yeah. is so great. Like it's, the, the list goes on and on and on. This art is gorgeous. This is the Carlos Pacheco that I think of when I think of Carlos Pacheco's art. He draws my favorite version of a lot of different things, a lot of different characters. And it, it this is kind of like a great place to get a taste of Carlos's vision of the Marvel Universe. And I love it so much. Now, the plot is so convoluted it's, it's so wild. complicated it's wild like i like i assure you i i implore you if you are going to read avengers forever and i agree that you should 100 percent, do not give yourself a lot of time in between chapters <laughs> read it in one or two sittings over the course of like a couple of nights it's only 12 issues you gotta plow through it though definitely you gotta plow through it because otherwise you're gonna like you give it a month and it's like what what's going on here what, what who is this? What's this version of Hawkeye? And it's just like, it's crazy. But and it, it makes perfect sense when you take into account these two time traveling demigods, essentially. Yeah, no, it's I, and I that love that messing I, with everything. The more complicated, like, look, man, give me all the, give me an infinite multiverse. Give me a bunch of different weird timelines clapping together. I live for that kind of stuff in oh, comics. Yeah. Oh yeah, this series is also where. Kurt Busiek gave us the final word on the differences between the original Human Torch, the android. Oh, yeah. And, and the vision. That's right. For, for many, many years, it was assumed Ultron basically took the body of the original Human Torch that it had been defunct from like the from World War II, from the invaders and recreated it into the into the vision. And then. In the 80s, John Byrne, when he did the storyline where the vision gets mind wiped and rebuilt as like the all white chalk vision, uh, they were like, no, man, the human torch not only is a completely different being, but he's back from the dead and now he's an Avenger. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, man, well, then what what's the deal? There's two different crazy Kurt Busiek said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The answer is that it's both. Yeah, it's both. Yep. They are two different beings and they are the same being because I forget who's responsible, but either Kang or Immortus created a temporal duplicate of the human torch's body. And the, the other one is what got turned into the vision. Yep. And like, it's just like, it's, it's so weird and crazy and such a weird thing that only Kurt Busiek would, would like want to like, I'm going to put my punctuation mark on this for easy. I love use, it so much. You can just say Nathaniel Richards did it. <laughs> Nathaniel Richards. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Nathaniel Richards did it. Um, this is so much fun. It's so much fun. The art is so beautiful. Um, fun fact again, Rick Jones did not fall ill. He crashed his car into the Hulk, who had been transformed into one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. But there was more than that going on. There was no 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 no. He was paralyzed because he smashed into the Hulk. 
He like he, he was no, paralyzed agreed. from the car crash. Paralyzed, but there was something else going on because even the beast in this issue was like, I don't know, man. This is even wackier than the legacy virus. I don't know. He should be healed. He should be okay. They keep. Oh well, I think that like he wasn't healing from his injuries or whatever, and they couldn't figure out why. And I think it's because Immortus is doing a thing. Right, but like he did, like he did, yes, but yeah, that's why he's paralyzed is right. because right. The 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 Hulk dressed like war or death or whichever horseman of apocalypse he was wanders out of the woods like a deer in the night and Rick Jones <laughs> smashes into him with his car his and was, the Hulk Rick is in the wrong place at the wrong time a lot right Joe and like the the, the Hulk looks at him you know brainwashed as he is and he you know grunts and then leaps away and and rick is like oh shit my friend what's happened to my friend oh oh god my legs you know it's sure like, and that that happened in peter david's hulk so yeah huge buy it this avengers forever <laughs> okay <laughs> uh sorry uncle joe's story time we're we're, we're lousy with him this week oh yes before i move on to my final review of the week i want to talk a little bit about some of the other options i considered uh there are a lot of modok stories not all of them are pivotal, like or like feature turning points or examples of Modoc's like tremendous power, like what I've picked. Character already. growth, if you will. Character growth, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you got first appearance, one that establishes him as like preeminent mental badass, one where he dies. You know, like these are those were where my head was at. I was gonna read an issue of The Incredible Hulk. It's during the Greg Pak run uh, before that book got relaunched for the 18th time, you know? Sure. And it was uh, during World War Hulks with an S. Okay. So the sequel to World War Hulk. So we're in prime Red Hulk territory. Right. Red She-Hulk, the whole Amadeus Joe. In that storyline, Modoc is cured, essentially. He is transformed back into George Tarleton. And blissfully, his memory of his days as Modoc. He can't remember them. Every appearance of MODOK we've seen since that issue of the Incredible Hulk has been a clone of MODOK. MODOK Superior, they called him at first. Oh, okay. I vaguely yeah. remember this now. Yes. And yeah, like, it's like MODOK was cured. Like, if you look it up on the wiki, first of all, there's two different ones. There's the MODOK wiki, and then there's the George Tarleton wiki. And that wiki ends with him getting cured. And it's like, he lived happily, happily ever after. The end. I didn't want to pick that. I, I I already had one where Modoc died. I wanted one where it's like I want to get I want to get into scheming Modoc. I want one where Modoc gets over. I want I want one where Modoc is like a little sillier, right? Because uh, more often than not, we think of Modoc as kind of a joke, and we get a lot of that in the comics, especially nowadays. Well, thanks so to Pat Oswalt, Joe. Everybody knows him as a joke. So <laughs> don't worry yeah, exactly, one hundred percent. And so my final review is of supervillain team up Modox 11, number one. This was from 2007. It's written by Fred Van Lanty with art by Francis Partella and Terry Pallet. You know what? Actually, Fred Van Lanty might have been right in the Hulk now that I'm thinking about it, but that's neither here nor there. Here's your solicit. While the heroes are away fighting World War Hulk, the first one, the villains can play Modoc, sick of being hunted and hounded by AIM. There they are again. Gathers together an eclectic team of Marvel's most wanted to pull off one last big score. That's a very generous way to describe them. (laughs) 
but news travels fast along the grapevine of villainy, and pretty soon every bad guy in the Marvel Universe is gunning for the big-headed one's unspeakably powerful prize. Executing their heist may be the easy part, because getting away with their loot alive is going to be the real challenge. For Modox 11! Modox 11 has two things going for it that I'm a huge sucker for. A heist story and a gaggle of D-list villains. This is a gathering the team issue as Modoc visits each recruit in the form of someone or something they'll respond favorably to. And the group is assembled in no time. Most of them are in some kind of desperate situation. Armadillo has to resort to wrestling for peanuts after washing out of the 50 state initiative. He was a member of the Texas Rangers. Oh, yeah. Under, under the leadership of the Texas Twister. I was going to say. work out. <laughs> the Texas Twister was there. <laughs> yeah. Puma is in deep shit with his tribe after getting indicted for bribery and fraud. Mentalo, or Mentalo, depending on how you want to say it, tries to use his psychic powers to rob a casino that's already been taken over by a different villain, and so on and so forth. Van Lanty gives us a much different take on Rocket Racer than I'm used to. The angry inventor with a chip on his shoulder has given way to a stuttering neurotic mess, but I will concede that I'm probably the only Rocket Racer fan on Earth that cares about that. This isn't uh, the Rocket Racer from Silver Sable and the Wild Pack is all I'm saying, from the, from the outlaws. The art by Francis Partella and Palette is excellent. I loved their takes on all of these bizarre losers. And their Modoc is appropriately imposing and ridiculous at the same time. The first issue of Supervillain Team Up, Modox 11, doesn't have quite as much of that big head content as maybe some of my other picks did. But it does set up a fun story that I, I'll definitely come back and finish later. Uh, you'll find it out there. Easy to find. It's, it's not that old. Fingers crossed that this group of goons doesn't try to kill him for a change. I'm sure he's getting real tired of that. I'm giving this a buy it. Spoiler, they do. But that's uh, yeah, I mean, kind of the curse on. of Modoc. You think you're smarter than everybody and everybody figures out like this guy's a jerk. <laughs> More or less. It's true. So it's true. This is Fred Van Lenty doing a thing that made me love Fred Van Lenty. And that's where like you could tell this guy loves D-list villains and he loves messing around with D-list villains and just having fun with them. And it's lighthearted. It's fun. It's really well drawn. It's a great excuse to put Modoc in a book and use all these other weirdos. <laughs> it's just too much fun. I love this. And Fred Van Linty, who I still very much enjoy, got like really serious after this. And I don't know if it's because Marvel was like, all right, you know, that was fun and you're good at it and whatever, but we want you to write a little more like serious Hulk type stuff. And which is cool. And I liked what he did, but I really liked when Fred would just have fun with stuff, you know? And he did some uh, Archer and Armstrong. That was really good, too. That was yeah. actually very funny, and I very much enjoyed. And I think he's really good at that, and I would wish he would write more humorous stuff. I miss it. So didn't, I mean, didn't he write uh, The Incredible Hercules? Yeah, but it got, remember, it like kind of got away from Doofus Hercules and sort of turned him into a more like smart Hercules. And he, Well, he, he was trying, trying to, be to be better, right? Yeah. He was trying to be yeah. a better And hero. it was fine. It just wasn't great. I, you know, I liked it. No, it was great. You're, you're not remembering, right? We loved that book. We loved it when it started. It just wasn't a joke a minute. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this is a lot of fun, though. I'm giving it a buy it. And it, like I said, if you love D-list villains and heroes, this is a romp. Good time. 
Well, if you're counting, we have talked about Ramatut. We have talked about Kang. We have talked about Immortus. But we have not talked about one more of Kang's personas that pops up in Young Avengers. Specifically, we're talking about Young Avengers number two from Marvel 2005. It's written by Alan Heinberg with art by Jim Chung. It is the origin of Iron Lad, a young Nathaniel Richards. At the end of issue one, Iron Lad reveals to the existing actual Avengers, this was right before Brian Michael Bender's new Avengers team at the time, that he was a young Nathaniel Richards from the future. Here, Iron Lad lays out how he got to the 21st century. While being bullied in the 30th century, young Nathaniel is confronted by his future self, Kang, who gifts him the time-traveling Iron Lad armor to help him become the conquering badass Kang the Conqueror, starting out by killing his bully. But instead, Iron Lad travels back to the 21st century to find the Avengers, the only people that have stopped Kang in the past and can stop him from becoming Kang. The only problem is the Avengers have disbanded in the wake of Avengers disassembled. Hmm. There is so much in this Young Avengers book that applies to things that seem to be happening right now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's crazy. Short of Iron Land, that is. I don't think we're going to see that one. As we've got mm, an, probably not. We've got an Iron Heart character. But who knows? We're getting Kang, so all bets are off. <laughs> I love the decision to introduce another younger version of Kang before he went evil. Now, there is a kid of Mortis, too, but that is a discussion for another day. <laughs> let's not. Let's not. Heinberg's writing on this short-lived series was excellent, and he had to win myself and a lot of fans over back when BMB had just disassembled the Avengers. This title seemed like it was just going to be a gimmick at best. This was the guy that wrote the OC for Fox, getting his first job <laughs> writing comics, and it was writing a team of young Avengers. No thanks. Turns out I was a judgmental prick and this book was excellent. And you know what? The OC is pretty good too. It didn't hurt that there was incredible art by the legendary Jimmy Chung. I've got to give this a buy it. And I, so I read issue one and two just so I could be up to, you know, up to speed on two. I am going to go back and read this entire series. It was so great. And I love that Kang was a hero for a minute there. It's so perfect. <laughs> it writes itself. Yeah, I, I, this is this is really, really wonderful. It's a side of Kang that we've never seen before. And, you know, this is 2005. So we are nearly 40 years. 63 would have been Ramatut. So. Oh, was it? Okay, so. Yeah, so 1963 to 2005, that's that's 42 years. We're 42 years past the uh, creation of the concept of, of what would become Kang. And so we've seen him as a guy that wears a red metal bathing suit with a cape. Uh, oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about the Scarlet Centurion. Scarlet Centurion, yeah. <laughs> uh, an Egyptian pharaoh with a ray gun, a guy with a tall pope hat uh, and a goatee. 
and like we've got so many different versions of Kang already. Oh, don't forget Nathaniel Richards, who came back in time to become Reed Richards' dad and then start Shield with Leonardo da Vinci. No, 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 that's not <laughs> Kang. That's uh, that. Uh, that's this, a different Nathaniel a, Richards. Nathaniel Richards. The Nathaniel Richards <laughs> Kang is a descendant of right. Reed's dad. Right. But yeah, the the Richards family tree. You, know, you thought the Summers family was messed oh, up. Oh, they don't got even, no. They got nothing on don't the even, Richards. Don't even try to twenty. <laughs> don't even try to twenty three and me this shit. And so Heinberg is like, yeah, I've got a new take on Kang, and it's Iron Lad, and it's goofy, and it's like Iron Lad. Well, yeah, that's because he like idolizes this classic era where heroes were heroes, right? Yeah. And it's it's fun. It's so fun. It's beautifully drawn. It's so gorgeous. Jimmy Chung. Yeah. I cannot believe how far that guy came. It's still like, it's still getting better every time. He's still a, a, a superstar. Yeah. Uh, no, almost 20 years after Young Avengers came out. But another one of those guys that also like, go look at his first stuff. It's great. It is good. It's, it's not this good, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. I remember, I remember the first time I saw Jim Chung's art was on uh, guest. Uh, he was guest penciling some issues of the of Mark Wade's Flash, and you can rec- you look at it and recognize it. I think that's some of his first work, actually. Yeah, and you'll look at it and well, yeah, that would have been in the whatever, like yeah. er, that would have been in like the early mid nineties. Yeah, you'll look at it, you'll recognize it as Jim Chung, but just to see how far he's come is incredible. This is a buy it for me. This book is great. This series is great. Um, Alan Heinberg wrote. A, a, a very small number of comics. He re, he wrote Young Avengers. He he co-wrote some stuff. He co-wrote an arc of JLA with Jeff Johns. That's yeah. good, but not great. This stands out as exceptional work. And this is during a time where I know that Matt and I were very critical of Marvel. Bringing in people from outside comics to write comics that didn't really get it. Yeah. Well, we'd been burned by a lot of it at this point. Well, and it's not that they're not good writers. It's that they, it's like they, they couldn't wrap their heads around the comic fact writers. that comics were a different medium and that what worked in novels or on TV was different than what it took for comics. And Alan Heinberg came in as a super nerdy fan and killed it right out of the game. Yeah, turned out I to be a nerd it. just like us. We've got links to more info on all of these macrocephalic time traveling comics. That means big head. Yep. In our show notes. But before we strip out of our aim beekeeper costumes, we need to pick our favorite comic from this pile to enter the THN permanent collection. Which comic was your favorite? And if you had to choose who was cooler, gun to your head, Kang or Modok, who would you pick? It's Kang. Kang is cooler than Modok. Modok is sillier and arguably one of my favorite villains and I love the design and just awesome but god damn I love Kang he's such a badass because you can they have done so much with this character he's literally split into like six different characters that hate each other <laughs> it's so great but my favorite book is Avengers Forever number one no question that was like one of those books that was very formative for me at that time and got me to really start paying attention way more attention to the Avengers than I have ever paid I picked up Avenger stuff. I picked up Cap stuff. But that was a book where I was just like, oh, shit, I get it. These bad guys are truly bad, super scary. They're not just these silly characters. 
And Pacheco's art, again, the way that dude draws Kang, he just looks scary. Avengers Forever, easily. I totally agree. Avengers Forever is my pick as well. Now, if I had to choose gun to head, which character I like better, it's Modoc. Uh, I think Kang is great. And I think that if you want to split hairs over the term cooler, I do think I do think that Kang is cooler. <laughs> However, I am more happy to read a Modoc story than I am a Kang story. I love Modoc. I love him so 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 much. That's fair. And, we yeah, we so. said cooler. That's very subjective, you know. Now that the Cosmic Longbox is even more confused about Kang's origins than we are, it has sent us back to our proper timeline while it mulls things over, and God help it when it starts to read about Kid Amortis. Joe, we find ourselves in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where we come to hide from the world of technology and focus on the ancient magics that fuel the ziggurat. Also, we make our must-read picks for next new Comic Book Wednesday. Joey Patrick, what should these listeners be picking up from their LCS next Wednesday, February 22nd. My pick for next week is Superman number one from DC Comics. It's $4.99. It's written by Joshua Williamson with art by Jamal Campbell. And here is your solicit. It's the dawn of DC. Superman has returned to Metropolis and his greatest enemy, Lex Luthor, is finally behind bars. The future of the Superman family has never been brighter. As Clark Kent settles back into his life, Iconic and new enemies erupt from the shadows to strike down the Man of Steel. But waiting in the wings to back up Big Blue is Super Corp. What secret project has Lex given to Superman? Oh, man. Did Lex make Superman the CEO of Lex Corp? What? I hope that. I hope it's true. No. I hope it's true. No. <laughs> I hope it's true. Just to, just to mess with him. Oh, I'm giggling. <laughs> so we spoke about this uh, when the announcement was made. We are kind of excited for Joshua Williamson to get his shot at writing an iconic character. Dude proved Not that it. writing the Flash is nothing. No, but he but proved he can do it. I mean, like, look, this last crisis was a lot of fun. Dark Crisis was a good like, time. Like, this is high, this is high profile, baby. Yeah. Like, you're given the, you're given, you've been given the keys to dad's catalog and it's like, keep it in one piece. Josh is ready. I don't want, I don't want any scratches on it. Now, I will Fill say. the gas tank when you, when, before you bring it back. I will say, yet another comic book that in 10 years, someone is going to march in a comic book store and go, I got Superman number one. How much you want to give me for it? It's, yeah, it's true. Dude. Um, also. <laughs> no, um, you don't. <laughs> Jamal, Jamal Campbell is also a creator that is, was, has been a superstar in the making. And he, like, I've just been waiting for him to get. He's crazy good. Just give Jamal Campbell a high profile project. This is it. I can't wait. Yeah. Should be fun. Well, while we're picking DC books, my pick for next week is Batman One Bad Day, Clayface, the one shot. It's from DC. It's $7.99. It's written by one of my favorite writer combos, I guess, teams, we'll call them. Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, who wrote a Kang miniseries you should absolutely check out. It came out last year. Got a mention on my Golden Beppo's Best of the Year list. With art by Hermanico, who is also just stunningly, stupidly talented. Here's your solicit. All Basil Carlo ever wanted was to be an actor. No 
one of the greatest actors there's ever been. However, his life went off course when he became the shape-shifting monster known as Clayface. After years of doing battle with Batman in Gotham City and distancing himself from his dream, Clayface goes out west to Los Angeles, creating a new identity. He pursues his dream of acting only to find that Gotham City isn't the only place with an overwhelming sense of dread to it. That's not a good sentence either. And that he <laughs> might not have what it takes to make it in the city of angels. So he'll reshape the city to fit his needs in a deadly pursuit of stardom. From the rising star creative team of Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, Batman who worked on Batman Beyond, Neo Year, Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, and Hermonico who worked on Flashpoint Beyond. This is an epic tragedy not to be missed. So it sounds like this one is going to do something similar to what we saw in that Bane one bad day where we get like, here is a future story of the character when they've sort of stepped away from Gotham for a while and are doing something else. Fine with yeah. that. I love this team. Love the art. I love Clayface. I will Me too. scream it from the Me rooftops. Too. One of my favorite bad villains. Super excited for this. I, I also love clayface yeah <laughs> this is this is exciting if you don't like this clayface a, this is a great pick. you're probably a jerk that's all there is to it <laughs> yeah i totally agree and you know what you've got like five of them to choose from there are five different versions of clayface so pick one yeah. back in the day a group of my friends started a kick-ass hardcore band in omaha nebraska called clayface still have that t-shirt they ruled <laughs> they were nerds <laughs> yeah <I bet. laughs> go figure yeah go figure uh, you know what? I, I've I've still got Hulk on the brain this week. So the THN trade of the week for February 22nd is Hulk Grand Design Treasury Edition trade paperback from Marvel Comics. It's $34.99. It's written and drawn by Jim Rugg. Here's your solicit. The acclaimed Grand Design franchise continues with the monster dot 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 and the madness. Writer artist Jim Rugg follows in the tradition of Ed Pisker and Tom Scioli by unfurling the saga of the Incredible Hulk from the very beginning to the present day, from Bruce Banner's volatile upbringing to the fateful Gamma Bomb detonation that changed everything, to years of anger, smashing, and just wanting to be left alone. He's been a hero, a hate figure, a hate figure, huh? and even a world breaker. Now witness the biggest moments in the Hulk's history through the eyes of a single visionary storyteller. You'll never look at Bruce Banner the same way again. This collects the two oversized single issues of Hulk Grand Design, subtitled Monster and Madness. And if you don't know what a tabloid edition is, or treasury edition, I mean, go to the grocery store and see if you can find a copy of Weekly World News at the checkout rack. Yes. Or don't pick up the Inquirer because it's a fish wrap and it's yeah, terrible. Or, or Weekly World News, pretty harmless. <laughs> go, to a, go to a local restaurant and see if they have a rack that features your city's local independent arts paper. For us, it's the reader. That is a treasury edition. It's huge. Yeah. They yeah. are gigantic. They're massive. They're so cool. and uh, they're so much fun. Oh God, these great! We didn't love the we didn't love the Fantastic Four one, but I love Jim Rugg. I love Jim Rugg. I love Jim Rugg too. And his I never even his I never even saw stunning. I never even had a chance to check this out. I'm so excited! It's, it's so good. Out. It is so freaking good. I love uh, it. Absolutely man. love it. Pick this up. Now that you know what we're picking up, let us know what you're reading over at our Discord in the new comics channel. And 
Be sure to let us know if you dug our picks or if we need to skip town and head to L.A. Excelsior! That is it for TGN number 695. Next week, we are back reviewing new comics. We're going to have a Patreon extra for you to check out. In the meantime, check out our nerd news show. Hit in your feed and join us for the THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. You can show up early. Turn on your mic. Start talking. You don't need us to start the party. We'll show up when we're done recording the nerd news, and we'll talk about it there. Check out our Discord for more details. Joe, tell them what else they can do there. Are you looking for a new read, or do you have a question only a two-headed nerd can answer? Have you got a hot take? Sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com. You can also just go to twoheadednerd.com slash discord. That takes you straight to it, where we've got channels for all of our segments, or you can call the THN hotline 402-819-4894 and leave a message, or send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. We will put you on the show. If you're new to the show, happen to have a giant head and feel body shamed after this episode, I assure you it's only because you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear about the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN. Where you will find where you will find things to body shame you for all manner of different reasons. <laughs> THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our patron Idris Hussein. Word on the street is he is the twin brother of Idris Elba. You can tell him apart because Idris Hussein, a little better looking. Fair enough. So that, that's how it works. You have the same name. You're obviously related. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash. You guessed it. Two-headed nerd. It's like uh, if you are in the Marvel Universe and you have the same haircut, you are related. Absolutely. Yeah. According to John Byrne. It's an Osborne thing. Yes. It's an Osborne thing. Yeah. You got that. You got them weird cornrows. Cornrows. You must be cousins. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to G. Willow Wilson, Marcio Takara, and the entire creative team of Poison Ivy. DC announced the current six issue miniseries was such a success. Poison Ivy will be continuing as an ongoing series after issue number six. That's right. They got transformed. I hope they put number six in a five-issue limited series on the cover like they did well, it was in a, the 80s. It was a six-issue limited series, so it would be number seven in a six-issue limited Yeah, that's what I mean. You know what I mean. <laughs> You're just not so good at the math. I get it. Hey, yeah, you know. Where do you toxic-kissing eco-terrorists, and if you aren't reading Poison Ivy, you should be. It's that a great book. book is fantastic. I was happy to hear that. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just kiss you and knock you unconscious. This is the Two-Headed Nerd. Signing off. That is deeply troubling, man. Huh? All you gotta do is pre-order and it won't be a problem. So. <laughs> <laughs>